I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less, and don't anyone ever rip you off. And I want you to know this weekend is a huge weekend for bargain shopping for yourself personally or for Christmas shopping, is everything's fast forwarded this year. And we are working right now around the clock at ClarkDeals.com, posting new deals for you to take advantage of the very time-sensitive sales. Another wave of sales starting tonight at midnight that you're going to want to take advantage of. So the economy has been through quite a ride lately. It's been a tough roller coaster down for a lot of Americans, 60-plus million having faced unemployment at some point this year, and we're kind of halfway back on where people are in terms of employment, but we've stalled out a little bit lately. The ADP report of private sector employment has been disappointing. The number of applications, new applications for unemployment continue stubbornly high, way off their uh, crazy record numbers earlier this year, but still very dispiriting to people who found uh, enormous job insecurity lately. It is a, a tough, tough thing. But at the same time, Americans who have stayed working, particularly those who are in the roughly third who've been able to continue working from home, have found that their spending has gone way down. Their rate of savings has gone way up, way above historical averages in the United States, where Americans in recent times have been saving about six cents of every dollar they make. Um, In the peak of the pandemic in the spring, Americans overall were saving one-third of what they made. It was when so many people were in areas of the country where they were either legally required to lock down or chose to. And even as people in many parts of the country have just reemerged into normal everyday activities, overall economic activity is still slower. And there are a lot of things a lot of people just aren't doing. So the savings rate has remained really, really escalated. I mean, some of the recent months, we've had people saving 15% of their pay, 19% of their pay, 25% of their pay um, just varies month to month. But people are putting money aside because they're worried and they want a cushion, which is true for many people and still others. They're just not doing things that they would normally do, like maybe travel, eat out a lot, um, go to concerts. There are a number of activities that involve go to sports events things that people might normally do where they're in close contact with other people they're not doing and they're not finding other things they're going and spending that money on so people are living on substantially less than what they make and so this actually sets us up for what will be a continued rough ride in the shorter term as we deal with the health aspects of the pandemic, the employment problems we've had because of the pandemic, but the longer-term picture 
as you look out into 21, is we have planted the seeds of what will be a very strong recovery once there's a sense that we have an all clear on the pandemic or the pandemic feels much more under control. We maybe have a vaccine that people trust and they take. We will see a boom in economic activity. I mean, a boom, because there's so much money on the sidelines right now as people who have stayed employed have improved their personal finances to such a degree that that money will flood into activities. And a lot of people have pent up desire to get life back to what was normal before March of this year. And so they will travel. They will eat out. They'll go to concerts. They'll go to sports events. And they will do more of it even than they did in the past is almost like a catch-up to normalcy. So regardless of what the politicians do and all the rest, we are going to see a very strong recovery when coronavirus starts moving from being in front of us to slides into our rearview mirror. I can pretty much guarantee that. It's time for your questions you posted for me at clark.com slash ask. Producers Kim and Joel alternate and Kim, you're up. All right, this is from John in South Carolina. John says, we prepared a very expensive trip to Alaska through a travel agency and then COVID hit. The trip was scheduled for July. We requested a refund within the contract parameters, but yet as of today, we have not received a cent back. We know the travel agency is going through a hard time, but they have more than $13,000 of our money. Oh, my goodness. Do you have any advice how I can recover it without having to employ a lawyer? Oh, I'm really sorry. And I think how many people we've heard from in situations similar to yours, but not as large, typically, of an amount of money. The travel agencies, tour operators are broke. They generally don't have the money and they may have paid it to other uh, people in the food chain involved with the trip you purchased, or they may have used it for operating expenses and then revenue just dried up. If you go the lawyer route, you will certainly be able to get a judgment. The problem is the travel agency may not have any money that you can get, or they may even bankrupt out, go out of business and bankrupt out. The lawyer route, though, is potentially worth considering because the amount of money you have involved is such a large amount. Um, I, I don't know if you paid for elements of this on a credit card. If you did, as an interim step, you may or may not be successful with this. Dispute the charge for this trip with your credit card company. But this is a circumstance where at least consulting with a lawyer would be a good idea. When I've talked to people where the amounts, as precious as the money is, have been in the amounts of a couple of thousand dollars or less, as a general rule, it's not worth it to reach out to a lawyer to pursue a claim. But when you break over 10 grand, no doubt it would be worth you consulting with a lawyer. I'm really sorry. Joel? 
Clark Robert in Georgia says, I have leased a car with all the bells and whistles, and the lease ends next month. I want to pay to purchase it. However, it needs tires and brakes really badly. Other than that, it is in great shape. Who pays for the tires and brakes in this situation? Should I buy tires now or should I wait? And my son-in-law called and they refused to offer any incentives. Is there anything else we can do when we're bargaining? Yeah, so um, the leasing company wants that vehicle back so badly they can taste it because the uh, lease vehicle market has had an unusual surprise also related to coronavirus where the used vehicle market has seen values increase that are unprecedented this year because people have been unwilling to use public transportation or other forms of getting around like Uber and Lyft because they're worried about transmission. And so they've been buying used cars as a replacement for the other ways they used to get around. So the residual in your lease is probably a great deal for you right now. And they don't want you to buy it. They want you to turn it back in. So you are responsible typically in most leases for the condition of the vehicle and depending on the wording of the lease you probably have to buy new tires for the vehicle even if you turn it in because they'll charge you for them anyway because of the wear and tear clauses in a lease so uh, likely the things you need to do to the vehicle you need to do in either circumstance but i recommend right now anybody with a lease coming to an end Almost always, you're going to want to buy that vehicle for the existing residual. Kim? Hal in North Carolina says, we sold and closed on our home and we plan to build a new retirement home. The retirement home will take about eight to 10 months to build. What should I do with the house proceeds for these months? It's $230,000. Also, we do we have any tax liabilities with these proceeds? The sale was in October, and we don't expect to close on the new home till July or August is 2021. Your prin- is your principal residence, sorry, I stepped over you there, Kim. No worries. With your principal residence, you are allowed to pocket a gain of up to a quarter million as a single individual, half a million as a married couple, tax-free. So there should be no tax implications at all on the sale of the property is for the money, you need to just park it. There's no other thing to do with it. You're below FDIC maximums uh, for FDIC insurance, which is a quarter million. So just put it in the best interest-bearing savings account you can at a credit union or at one of the online banks. You won't earn a lot, but you'll earn a lot more than you would at a traditional bank. And you just basically let the money sit in that parking space So you need it to pay for your new retirement home. And I hope you love the next phase of your life. Joel? Clark Susan in Connecticut says, I'm currently paying almost $90 a month for my drug plan that I have with Medicare and supplemental insurance. I've been looking at GoodRx to see if that would be more a more cost-efficient way to go. Although my drugs are tier one and I don't have a copay, it seems that GoodRx would be cheaper than the monthly premium, even with the out-of-pocket expense. It seems too good to be true, and I'm afraid I'm missing something, am I? Well, here's what you are missing, is that you're paying 1000 almost $1,100 a year, quick math, for your drug plan, for which you could replace it just buying free market with very low-cost generics for a fraction of that cost using GoodRx or 
getting your prescriptions at Costco or something like that. Uh, the problem is, and the advantage of you paying that huge premium is that if you develop a medical condition that requires that you take an expensive drug, you're going to want to be on Medicare Part D and have that prescription benefit. So that's why you're paying it is for a future possibility that you might need to use an expensive medication that would way outstrip the $1,100 a year you're paying in premiums right now. And that's really a personal choice. Do you want to roll the dice and save money now and face a financial risk later? Or are you buying essentially an insurance policy against a future very expensive series of drugs that you might need? Kim? Michelle in Georgia says, I've received four packages from Amazon in the past two weeks that I did not order. Is there any advice on how to stop this? So this is something that's usually referred to as brushing. You're getting these things you didn't want and you didn't order. Usually they'll be uh, less expensive things. And the sellers will probably try at some point to get you to write positive reviews about their products. Only if they were very expensive items would I freak out because then it could be somebody trying to use your name and your address as a diversion. I assume you're not being billed for these items. Correct. So they're just a nuisance in your life. Probably not anything other than that. Jim joins us on the Clark Howard Show. And Jim, you are the most enthusiastic HSA participant ever. <laughs> well, thank you, Clark. Um, yeah, I want to, you know, I changed uh, a year ago to a high deductible plan just to, to make use of the HSA. But I did so as an individual. And I really want to make the most out of it and am looking to add my child to the plan. But, of course, that comes at additional cost. And she is covered under my wife's plan, and we don't want to change that. So I'm looking at it purely numbers. And, yes, there's an increase in annual cost, but I get like a $3,600 bump in HSA contributions. Yeah, you double what you can contribute from 3600 to $7,200 a year. Are you using... Your HSA is like an alternative IRA or 401k where you're just letting it grow over the years so that you have... Absolutely. All right. That makes you brilliant. That makes you brilliant. And only something like one in every 20 people are doing an HSA the way you're doing it. So so is there something I'm missing or a negative to this um, other than just, you know, it does have higher annual deductibles but yeah I'm that's it that's it so if you're deductibles now so when you're plan shopping and right now she's with your wife and instead she'd go to you on the on the health care then if if your daughter has any major expenses then what looks like a great idea doesn't feel so good in a year that your daughter might have major medical expenses yeah. but other than that yeah, you're all over it because being able to double the amount you're able to contribute HSA and have that money grow and grow and grow over the years is fantastic. Yeah, we are. Um, I am using it to uh, invest within that that portfolio too. So, 
it's already returning nicely. So I just wanted to make sure I wasn't crazy that that wasn't a decent plan. No, I mean, HSAs for a lot of people are the most effective long-term tax-free savings instrument available. And what you're doing is you're taking it up to the level and beyond what a Roth IRA could do for you. And HSAs have even more tax advantages than a Roth. So I would go for it as long as your daughter's health seems really good and there's no ongoing chronic conditions that have to be managed. And best to you on doing the HSA in the way that so few people understand as a long-term play, not a short-term one. Great to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you have. I believe it's really important that we all work together to empower each other, to educate each other, that we are community helping people to take more control of their lives and their wallets. And so this is all about us learning together on the show. And there are times that you'll hear me give advice, information, or opinion, or an answer to somebody's question, and you'll be like, that's not sounding right. Or why didn't Clark say this? Or uh, why would Clark answer that that way? And I want to hear from you. And we make it really easy for you to share when you feel maybe I've gotten something wrong or given bad or incomplete information. You go to Clark.com slash Clark Stinks and you post where you feel that I did come up short. And then once a week, producers Kim and Joel read highlights from the posts that you have put at Clark.com slash Clark Stinks. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. Okie dokie, Clark. Today we are starting with Alan. And Alan says, on a recent podcast, you responded to a question regarding the necessity of showing a receipt. You said it is required by law. Based on my understanding, it is not required by law. This is America. There is no law that requires you to prove that you have paid for your purchase. We have due process. If the store believes that you have stolen something, they can detain you with reasonable suspicion or they can call the police. However, we are not required to show a receipt by law. Certain shopping clubs, such as Costco, have it as a requirement of their membership that they can revoke your membership if you do not comply. So this is correct. Is uh, Kim, you have researched and found out that the answer I gave was wrong. And so a retail store has to have probable cause that you have done something wrong when they ask to check your purchases. You'll see that um, if you've ever seen store video when they do stop a shoplifter, there's typically a specific item that they're looking for that uh, somebody in LP, you know, loss prevention, has seen or believes they've seen somebody stuff down their pants or whatever while they were in the store. But the receipt thing is actually voluntary, except as you stated, in a warehouse club where it's typically in the membership policy 
that you agree to have your receipt checked at the door. A store that you have no pre-existing contract with, it is a voluntary thing, and I was wrong on saying, yeah, they can ask to see it. They can ask to see it, but you are not required to show the receipt to them. Joel? Clark Tom says, I've heard a few people ask about setting up an LLC or an S-Corp, and Clark recommending one or the other depending on the situation. At least in Virginia where I live, you can do both and have your LLC set up as an S-Corp, which at least for smaller entities can provide a significant tax advantage by not having to pay corporate taxes. Wow. The Commonwealth of Virginia with an unusual wrinkle. Thank you for sharing that. No one has ever mentioned that before. And it's something that's not on my radar. Thank you for taking the time to post that. Kim? Joan says, Clark, when you announce a great deal like T-Mobile is offering through Boost Mobile, you should also mention that promotions sometimes require you to bring your own phone. I phoned the store for details and the salesperson inquired what type of cell phone I had. I told them what type it was and the salesperson advised me that it probably wasn't even worth my time to drive to their store because there are a very, very limited number of manufactured phones that could be ported. Ooh, what was the motivation? You know, those are independent dealers with Boost. What was the motivation to scaring you away? I don't know. Um, Boost Mobile on its website has a tool where you can see whether the phone you have will work on their system. And in addition, the crazy person at that store should have advised you, but you can see on the Boost website there are a lot of cell phones you can buy very cheaply that will work on the ultra, ultra cheap boost plans that got boosted to be much better than they had been. Don't know how long they'll keep them like this, but once you have it, you keep it. $10 a month gets you unlimited talk and text and two gigs of data a month. $15 a month gets you four gigs of data and unlimited talk and text, which is an amazing deal for cell phone service for a huge percent of Americans, particularly the 15 and 4 gigs that covers the data use within the limit of what a huge percent of the American population uses in data every month. I'm sorry you got a bum steer from that phone call to a boost store. Joel? Clark, Mike says, you stink more than the 2020 Atlanta Falcons. That's harsh, right? That is. I, I mean... The poster could have said the New York Jets. <laughs> but he knows you love the Falcons, so we wanted to toss that dig in there, I think. <laughs> Mike says, you were asked if you should keep your emergency fund in a Roth IRA, and you said that was okay. That is not okay. I speak from experience. I was doing the same thing and figured if there was an emergency, I'd pull the contributions out of my Roth IRA, and then an emergency happened, COVID, and the stock market was at an all-time low, the worst time ever to pull money out of my Roth IRA. Thankfully, I was not badly affected, and I've been building up my emergency fund in an online savings account ever since. Thank you very much for that post, and I appreciate you pointing this out, that when I, when I do take a theoretical question about using a Roth as a rainy day account, sometimes I neglect to talk about the consequences of what you do with the money inside the Roth if you do use it for rainy day, and yes... Like any other investment account invested in stock 
type funds, you have risk in the short term of making a withdrawal and that makes it not the most suitable place in many cases for a rainy day account. And that was absolutely true. And I'm glad that it ended up not costing you. It sounds like you're back on your feet well today. Kim? Ken says, on a recent podcast, you suggested a listener recall their HOA board because they closed the HOA's community pool due to coronavirus. Clark, you really soiled yourself on this one. Why would you suggest that board members are too fearful or have a desire to ruin the quality of life in their community? Are you advocating that boards should not follow their attorney's advice? You failed to consider the HOA's insurance policy. Most, if not all, exclude viruses. It's one thing for the HOA to be sued where their insurance will defend the HOA, but to but in order to defend against a coronavirus lawsuit, whether it can be proven or not, means all of the homeowners are responsible for the cost of defending it. Furthermore, many HOAs do not have the reserves for such a lawsuit, nor can they afford to implement requirements imposed on reopening their pool. Instead of suggesting homeowners recall their board members, you should be suggesting they recall their state and local bureaucrats. Clark, you really need to recall the advice you gave to your listeners. And you're not the only person who said that to me about this because I was approached by a president of a homeowners association making the similar points that you made, that this was something that was not an optional choice for many HOA boards, that it was in fact imposed on them by their insurers and Uh, As I said to the individual who approached me, I said, how did you communicate that it was out of your hands, that it was an insurance requirement to your board members? And I got a blank stare. So communication in a case like this is absolutely key so that people understand that the decision was not made in a vacuum. Joel? Clark, this one comes from Scott. He says, your stance on the monster mega banks compared to your stance on investing is incredibly hypocritical. When you deposit money in a bank, you're giving them your money to use as they wish to try and make money. And the bank shares some of that profit with you in the form of interest on your account. This is a direct form of investing, but one you're vehemently against when it comes to the likes of Bank of America, Wells Fargo, etc. Um, and Because they're evil in your mind. But when it comes to traditional investing in mutual funds, you are very much against ethical funds because they don't make you enough profit. And instead, champion investing in index funds such as ones that track the S&P 500. Why do you turn a blind eye to who you're investing in when it comes to mutual funds, but only care when it comes to direct investing by having an account with them? Here's some of the evil monster megabanks you're putting your money with when you invest in the S&P, Wells, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, and more. If you care about one form of investing, you should care about both. And to be so passionate when you know it's a megabank, but intentionally ignorant when there's a thin layer of abstraction is beyond hypocritical. It results in a serious loss of credibility and makes one question where your values truly lie. Wow. Thank you, first of all, for your passion. So when I put money in Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Chase, or Citibank, the four giant monster megabanks that hold half of banking in the United States, If I use them as a customer, I get absolutely horrific deals from them. They pay the absolute lowest rates on savings of any institutions. 
They tend to charge higher fees than anybody else. And they're able to do those two things because of the number of branches they have, their national presence, that people gravitate to them because of their very size. But being a customer of these four giant monster megabanks is a really bad deal for you, including their loan rates tend to be significantly higher than competition in the marketplace. So how does that square with the investing thing? So they are going to be a part of the index funds that I'm in, and I just own the marketplace. It's the most efficient way to invest, but banks as a practical matter are a really small part of what's going on with my investments in an index fund. Going back to the evil thing, giant monster mega banks are not at their core evil. Wells Fargo proved for years to be a criminal enterprise impersonating a bank. But as a general rule, it's just that being with a big bank is a bad deal for your wallet, not that they're evil. Wells Fargo accepted. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Timothy's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Timothy. How are you doing? Good, Clark. How are you today? Great, thank you. I understand you're going to cuss here on the show, so I need to warn parents of small children. Go ahead and throw the cuss word out first so they know I'm teasing. Well, it's annuity. It's that word you don't like, but I have a different twist on it that I don't think I've ever heard you talk about before. Let's hear. Well, I'm 60 years old, been retired for five years. I have a pension that takes care of um, pretty much all of my necessary expenses. And I don't want to take Social Security until I'm 65 to 67. So I'm thinking about taking some of my 401k and invest it in a fixed annuity that'll pay me 3.3% a month. And it has a guaranteed principal at the end. So whatever amount I put in now, um, I'll have after five years. But I have to leave the money there for five years. Okay, so let's talk about a few things. Let me go back to the Social Security thing. So if your pension is covering most of your living expenses, delaying Social Security, unless you have a specific health problem that you think is going to curtail your lifespan, waiting till age 70 is the greatest thing you can do for your finances because the embedded increase in how much you get every month from Social Security when you start getting it and then every increase from that point is so ginormous if you just wait 
10 years till you're 70 instead of waiting five to seven years to start it. Even if you had to spend some of that money to supplement your life between age 60 and 70 from the 401k money you have, it's still better to get that much larger Social Security check starting at age 70. You get, mm-hmm. okay. you get an embedded return that's like 8% more money every month for every year you wait. Right. Um, so on the issue of the annuity, if you have enough money to live on right now from the pension, which is a great position to be in, why are you worried about an annuity anyway, which is really about preserving money that you just got to have in the immediate future in your case? Well, I'd like to do some extra things, like do some traveling, uh, maybe join a golf club, those type of things. And at this point, you know, my pension does cover my fixed expenses, but uh, to do the extra things, um, I need a little extra cash. And you feel like taking some chips off the table from your 401k, putting in an, an annuity for five years, gives you that set amount of money every month. And tell me, the annuity you said, you only have to leave it in for five years. Are you sure about that? Yep, it's a five-year fixed annuity. That, okay, uh, so let, let me say personal. something. I'm, I'm glad you just said that. So often when you buy a fixed annuity for a stated number of years, only the return is for those five years, that 3.3% per year for five years. But you may not be able to exit that annuity after five years. Hmm. Okay, I'll have to so talk more the, about with my financial advisor. All right, so the contract for that annuity if it's a normal fixed annuity, will be as many as 160 pages long. So know that what you're told it will be is not what matters. All that matters is what's buried in the lawyer junk in the 160 pages. And the salesperson can tell you anything, but the question is, after five years, are you subject to a surrender charge if you move the money? What tax implications are there when you move the money? And you've got to know all that before you make any decision. As an alternative, I would like you to look at potentially taking out what's known as an immediate payout annuity. That instead of paying you for five years on the money you would set into it, it would pay you that amount of money for as long as you live. And at the point you're not with us anymore, the money stops and there's no money for heirs. But an immediate payout annuity is one insurance agents will never talk to you about because they don't get any meaningful commissions from selling them. All the money goes to work for you. And they're simple, and it pays you for the remainder of your life. And then you'd have that walking around money you're talking about to do the extras, not just for five years, but for the rest of your life. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.